The following audio is from Christ Presbyterian Church in Nashville, Tennessee, where our mission is to follow Christ and His mission of loving people, places, and things to life. For more information about Christ Presbyterian Church, please visit ChristPres.org. Today's scripture is from Mark 1, verses 1 through 4 and 9 through 13. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, as it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. John appeared, baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, you are my beloved son, with you I am well pleased. The spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness and he was in the wilderness 40 days being tempted by Satan. And he was with the wild animals and the angels were ministering to him. This is the word of the Lord. Praise be to Christ. Thanks, George Orr. Well, again, it's great to be with you. Glad to have you with us and uh, to be preaching through a new series in Mark. Um, I recall, I feel like I've done a lot of weddings lately, and I'm recalling a a wedding I did um, a number of years ago that was literally three days before Christmas. And, um, and the couple was incredibly excited. Not that any couple isn't, but the, to think about this day they've been waiting for for a while built a lot of anticipation. Now, if you, as I do weddings, one of the things I love to do is watch and, uh, and, and see, especially the groom's face as the bride is coming down the aisle and... There was so much there, and they were almost both on their toes the entire wedding. And it was just a glorious event. But the backstory of this wedding in particular that was interesting to me and that brought even more to it was that um, in a couple months, the groom, who is a Navy SEAL, would be deployed back to Afghanistan for uh, one of uh, his final tours. And so the wedding brought with it a lot more tension, a lot more excitement, a lot more of this, this up on your toes kind of, yes, we're here. This is such a wonderful, glorious event. But it, it was, in a lot of ways, was met with the tension of that leaving again and that silence to go overseas as someone who's in the military, not even to really be able to tell your, your own spouse that you just got married to uh, what's going on, where you are, uh, other than you're okay. I find that, especially now, and it seems very similar to the Christian life. There's this discussion of the gospel, this good news. We talk about Jesus. We talk about our relationship to him and that he's come, he's brought us to himself. We have this deep, wonderful, flourishing relationship. And yet there's this tension of we're still waiting. We still feel like we're in the dark sometimes, silently waiting for something more, that he has come, we're with him, but what's next? What's God doing? It really asks the question, and I think Mark does in particular help this, is what are we waiting for? <laughs> you know, that, that, that 
that pushes on that tension of anticipation and between something being fulfilled and yet still waiting. What, what, what really, where are you with that? What is it that you're waiting for? Are you waiting for a vaccine for your turn? Uh, waiting for a vacation? Maybe the vacation's over. Maybe you're waiting for some other sort of promotion, some sort of uh, next event. What is it that you're waiting for? What are you anticipating that you really, if you get to that point, and right now you're sitting in that tension of, you know it's already set, you know it's there, <clears throat> but you're not there yet. And you're just sitting with the deep tension of that. How does Christianity come into that part of us? How does Christianity really make sense of the waiting, the anticipation? Mark's gospel more than any other, and this is one reason we're going through this series, is the shortest and first gospel written. So in the New Testament, it is the first of the four gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, written of those four, <clears throat> written around 60 AD. And the thrust of it is a punch. It's supposed to be, it's actually the first and shortest 16 chapters, just a quick punch to, say, to answer the question, who is this Jesus? Now, how does he really impact us? It was written to a group of Roman Christians, particularly circulated with Roman Christians who were dealing with suffering. And they were dealing with a waiting that had been going on. They'd heard from the prophets, as we just actually finished Isaiah, this is perfect for that, even quoted in this passage, of the, there's a waiting, just keep waiting, there's a waiting, even the, the language here preparation. And it even starts in verse one, the beginning of, right? This, there's this dawn of something new. Mark is trying to tell us a couple things. One is the wait is over. And now we can live in, the, in this tension knowing that there's a wait that we're looking for, forward to that's going to solve it all. Mark is beautifully done. He writes this because he followed around Peter in his preaching and a little bit with Paul. <clears throat> and so we get to hear language. And as we walk through this gospel, you're gonna hear words and language that come not just from Mark, but you'll hear things that are written even in Paul's letters or Peter, particularly his letters, or, or when pre Peter preaches that are drawn in. And you'll get to hear that, that Mark is answering the question, who is this, why is Jesus so important? Who is this man? Over and over, we'll answer that. And today, we're gonna to answer it in this way, as it just opens up. It says we're that Jesus connects to our waiting through his preparation, through his work, and through his temptation. His preparation, his work, and his temptation. And his preparation, that is the word that's repeated here in Mark 1, uh, through four, Mark 1, 1 through 4, especially in verses 3 and 4, it says, the voice of the crying in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight his paths. John appeared, baptizing the wilderness, proclaiming the baptism, repentance. Verse 2, behold, I send my messenger before your face. Who will prepare your way? Anticipation is a huge deal. <laughs> uh, one of the things about Christmas that is massive isn't just about Christmas Day, it's the anticipation leading up. My kids were going berserk. We had, uh, I don't know about y'all, but we had a, um, 
one of those uh, like Lego um, uh, advent calendars. You could push the, open the door and you could, it, there's a little picture and you could build it. I mean, they got so excited by about day 16, they just started going pop, 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 pop. They just started opening all the doors. We're like, you're, you're taking all the things. They just wanted to open it. They almost didn't even finish doing the Legos. They just wanted to open the doors because they wanted to come so quickly. When I was a kid, a little boy, I remember the night, of, you know, before Christmas, you know, it was, it was the night before Christmas. And I remember waking up super early Christmas morning all to go out and with a flashlight and find all the presents that had been brought by Santa. And I thought, oh man. So instead of going back to bed, I took them, I started gathering them and taking them back to my room and I piled them up on me. And then my parents came out the next morning and there was nothing out there and they're, what was going on? They come into my room and there's just presents like on my face, all over my body, down. I mean, I was like, like a blanket of gifts. Why? Because I just couldn't wait. I couldn't wait. Anticipation is in our DNA. This is, why do people wait in line for, for a new phone? Why do people go to Comic-Cons to hear about the next big Marvel movie? Why, why do we wait for promotions? Why do we wait for a vacation? Why do we, anticipation is so deeply embedded in our DNA because we're made to wait and yet we hate it. Because the anticipation means there's something we're wanting, something longing. And this is where Mark 1, 1 starts. It says, the beginning of the gospel Mark does this different than any other. This is actually the only place this word is used in all four gospels. We've heard the word gospels, uh, announcements, proclamation of good news is what it means. But Mark is the only one that actually uses it in his first verse to say the beginning of the gospel. And the gospel, the word gospel means, uh, it means a proclamation of news. Uh, you typically, and it wasn't a religious word usually, that the Roman Christians would recognize this not as just a, a religious thing, but as an announcement of some large event. In fact, it was used in Roman history to announce uh, a victory in a war, uh, a ascension of a throne, of a king. And typically, that's what it was used for. But when they heard this, the beginning of the gospel, it said, this is news, not of something that you gave your opinion to, not something you determination of, but something that was there, you gave, you gave credence to. Something happened, a world-changing event that you gave reaction to. And for the Christians in Rome to hear the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, for them, this was something's coming in that we've been waiting for. Mark is writing about that's changing, not just what we've been waiting for for ages, centuries passed down in history, but something that was gonna change their current time. Their anticipation was being met with fulfillment. This is why it says, behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way. And it says, prepare the way of the Lord. Preparation. There is all this preparation for years and years and years. To answer the question, is Christianity powerful enough to come into space and time and actually address the deep longing of anticipation and waiting that we all have? Because everything that we want and we wait for and we anticipate is pointing, is touching something else that we want and think will fulfill it and yet we have to wait for the next thing after that. That weekend of rest, that, that vacation that we have. There's always another one after that we have to wait for. 
that we're longing to have another one, another weekend, another raise, another promotion, another GPA point, whatever it may be, all the anticipation, all the waiting, all the, is it? See, the prophets, and this is why it's quoted here, <clears throat> verse two through four, as it is written in, the, in Isaiah, the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make, uh, make his path straight. John appeared. Boom. There it is. It's saying, the wait is over. He's here. And these quotes, which are incredible, from Isaiah 40 and Malachi, actually, another um, uh, actual uh, minor prophet, or a collection of quotes that we're trying to say there's something large happening, not just as a prophetic thing that was like something in the you know, netherworld that you just kind of hope comes to fruition, but in space and time, a person appeared. John appeared, the preparer. In fact, the last prophet was John the Baptist, and he appears. And here's what's incredible. Mark knows by quoting this at the very beginning, what he's doing is he's attaching all the fulfillment of a, thir- a half to a third of the Old Testament that is constantly saying, someone's gonna come, someone's gonna come, and they would never see it fulfilled. And yet John is here, and the one with his own eyes would see this very thing fulfilled. And it even says this, that John appeared baptizing in the wilderness, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. See, the location was even something. Why does Mark take, Mark is so, uh, if if you're a person of few words, this is your book. Because he takes massive events and puts, squishes them down into a couple sentences. John appeared baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Wilderness. See, what it's saying here, the location, the desert, if you read in there and even in the other gospels, that historical and spiritual significance, the desert was a boundary between the east and west in which the Romans kept their eyes on would watched carefully for any enemies. Historically, this is where this, the wilderness, this desert, is where Lot chose, to, uh, Lot chose his plane in the Jordan. Jacob crossed to meet his, his brother Esau. This is where um, Joshua would lead the people from, into the promised land. This land was historical. There was some huge event that was happening in history and time and space that connected to all the historical events before that. And spiritually, spiritually it would talk about 40 years of wandering. The idea of the Messiah entering the desert himself. This news came at the crossroads of deep political tension, sacred historical memories, and future hopes. Does that sound familiar to us today? All of those things of this is saying, this is not just an event that connects to the Old Testament history in the past, but our waiting of what we've longed for in the future anticipation that connects to our longing of complete fulfillment. Henry Nouwen, who's an incredible author and writer and thinker, who really deep, deeply minds this out of his own soul, he talks about waiting in this way for us as Christians. He says, waiting is essential to the spiritual life. But waiting as a disciple of Jesus is not empty waiting. It is a waiting with a promise in our hearts that makes already present what we're waiting for. 
We wait during Advent, that is Christmas, for the birth of Jesus. We wait after Easter for the coming of the Holy Spirit. And after the ascension of Jesus, we wait for his coming again in glory. We are always waiting, but it is a waiting in conviction that we've already seen God's footsteps. Waiting for God is an active, alert, yes, joyful waiting. Because as we wait, we remember him for whom we are waiting. And as we remember him, we create a community ready to welcome him as he comes. That's what the church is. See, the church is a place where people are masters of waiting. (laughs) It doesn't mean we don't struggle with it. But it means we know the fulfillment of it. That we welcome people in to struggle with the reality of the tension that we live in now. That Jesus has come and we are waiting for him to return. And it makes sense of all those desires of waking up and smothering ourselves with gifts so that we, we can try and feel somehow by osmosis the, the fulfillment of something. Because he does that work. This is why he's baptized. His work talks about his relationship that he identifies with our anticipation. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth, verse nine. And he was baptized by John in the Jordan. Now, why in the world would Jesus need to be baptized? What's he doing here? It's interesting that Mark, of all places, he talks about something that's unique, especially in chapter one. Again, something that's unique to Mark that is different than other gospels. He begins the very first line here, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the son of God. Uh, Hello, hello. (laughs) massive title. He's not saying the son of David, which is what many uh, uh, other gospel writers and other places says, the son of David, which would point to his messiahship. This is says the son of God. This is a recognition of Jesus in a way that's very different than any sort of just messiah or anything else. It's saying that he has a relationship, a connection to God different than any any of us think. It speaks to his healing power. It speaks to his authority. It speaks to his, who he is and his even recognition. Even throughout the, this book, we'll see that not just people, not just Mark says this as a man of his title, but even demons recognize him as that. That, that, that in this person is connected the identity of our anticipation through this son of God throughout history. You know, I don't know many of you do New Year's resolutions. I know I don't necessarily make resolutions, although I have all these, you know, grandiose thoughts that I'm going to do really different things in life. So I don't necessarily put the resolution thing on it, but I still am in my heart and mind. But, uh, you know, where resolutions come from is really fascinating. It actually originated with the ancient Babylonians deep, far back, about 4,000 years ago. And the way that the, they, the Babylonians saw it, it wasn't that resolutions, uh, what they resolved to do, they didn't think of New Year's resolutions. The year began in March when spring came. So it was an agricultural world. So essentially for them, what they began to do is they, at this tw- they had a 12-day massive religious festival where they paid down their debts and returned any objects they borrowed. And these promises they called were forerunners of what we now know are resolutions. The Romans would pick this up, actually, and Julius Caesar would take this from the Babylonians and then with the god Janus would use the first of the year, January, after the god Janus, 
who the god Janus was the one who would look backwards in history and forwards in time. It was almost a two-faced god whose spirit inhabited what were called the doorways and arches of space and time. And January had special significance to them. So that people would do this. They would offer sacrifices to the deity and make promises of good conduct for the year to come. This is where our resolutions come. You can see where that comes from. But what if, what if Mark is trying to tell us, instead of making resolutions for us to be better, what if this, the gospel, the good news isn't about us trying to say we need to do better. We're gonna be more faithful. What if the focus isn't necessarily on us, but it's on him? What if every resolution that we made was less about us and more about him? What would that do to our faith? Here's what's fascinating. Why, go back to the question. Why does Jesus need to be baptized? Jesus is perfect, did he need to be baptized to show that he was washed or he was clean or that he need? Why? The reason he had to be baptized was to identify with us. In fact, his entire work wasn't about him. His work was to connect history to the present and future to make it about us and about two others in this passage. Verse 10, and when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, you are my beloved son with you, I am well pleased. You see, his baptism and his identifying with his people was about complete obedience and connection to the Father and the Holy Spirit. Now I know you're like Trinity, (laughs) but here's what's glorious about what this is saying. What this is saying is that that. What if Jesus' ministry, his baptism, his connection to the Holy Spirit in the, in the Heavenly Father, you hear here, the Spirit descending on a dove and the voice of the Father saying, you're my son with whom I'm well pleased. What if his whole purpose was about bringing all of them together and us into that relationship? See, here's what the Trinity is. The Trinity is this. As much as there is so much mystery about it, uh, this is the beauty of what we can connect to about it. Why the Trinity? The Trinity says that God is love. It says that he's more than just alone in his relationship. He's perfect togetherness, perfect separateness. All the tensions we feel with relationships about how we wanna be close to people and yet we know that we're different. The Trinity is perfect togetherness and perfect separateness. Perfect work. That in Jesus' ministry, his work to identify with us, he wasn't alone. What he was trying to do and what he was doing and what he accomplished in doing was connecting to the Father and the Holy Spirit. A trinity, trinity is mutual pleasure and dwelling relationship between the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit that we get to be brought into. See, the Holy Spirit takes This is interesting. Why is the Holy Spirit here? When he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens torn open, the Spirit descending on him like a dove. Where else in Scripture has has the Spirit descended like a dove? Well, there's uh, an account in Genesis uh, when we see it uh, with Noah from the ark. There's also another account with this language, even the verb descending 
uh, where it connects to Genesis 1, 1, when it says the spirit of the Lord was hovering over the waters. In fact, the word hovering, the verb, means also fluttering like a dove. See, what is happening here is a new creation. It is the dawn of something bigger that all of creation is recognizing there's someone here that's gonna bring in healing and it had to be the son of God. All of creation is waiting. This is why Paul in Romans chapter nine picks up that, that it isn't just us groaning. He says that in, in Romans chapter, uh, chapter eight, sorry, he says that all of creation is groaning. That creation itself is groaning for the day when it can become new. Because it longs to be transformed. It's a way, there's a waiting that's happening that's not just embedded in our DNA, but all around us. That Jesus is the new creation. And that then a voice comes from heaven that says, you're my beloved son, with you I am well pleased. That this is one of the most profound, and I will tell you verses to my own heart. Because it says here that Jesus heard something that all of us long for. You are my beloved son, with you I am well pleased. That the heavenly father literally tells him, you, with you I am well pleased. This means no matter what Jesus did, there wasn't a moment in his work where he second guessed, is God okay with me? There wasn't a moment where he was doing certain things in his ministry where he he had some sort of insecurity about whether his relationship with God was good enough or that he had value towards him or he was loved by him or that he didn't do enough to make his heavenly father pleased with him. There was never a moment in all of his work that he ever lost or didn't have the pleasure of God on him during his work. Unbelievable. And that is what we all are wanting. And it may not just be with a heavenly father, it may be with a boss, it may be with a spouse, it may be just ourselves. We wanna be pleased, but we never feel like we can. There's that anticipation, there's that longing. But what Jesus is doing is bringing us up. Here's what's amazing. He is baptized, recreative event for all of us. And then we are hearing the pleasure of God on his son. That because of his work identifying with us, that means his work of pleasure is on us. It means that God's actual pleasure and love isn't just with Jesus. If we're brought up into Jesus, if he's the one that represents us in this, what it's saying is he is the one that represents us, that gives us Through his relationship with God, we get to have that on us. That the pleasure of God, this voice, is put on us who are found in Jesus. I love C.S. Lewis talks about this, as he does so many times, the beauty of what love is. He says, all sorts of people are fond of repeating the Christian statement, God is love, but they seem to not have noticed that the words God is love have no real meaning unless God contains at least two persons. Love is something that one person has for another. If God was a single person, then before the world was made, he was not love. Of course, what these people mean when they say that God is love is often something quite different. They really mean love is God. They really mean that our feelings of love, however and wherever they may arise, 
and whatever results they produce are to be treated with great respect. And perhaps they are, but that is something quite different from what Christians mean by the statement, God is love. They believe, Christians, that living dynamic activity of love has been going on in God forever and has created everything else and now has come to us. That the feelings of anticipation, the the longing of waiting has been fulfilled in the work of Christ himself. This is what God is doing in this. And then he not only puts it on Jesus to give to us, but he goes on in even just two small verses to say where our faith struggles with it, Jesus is our champion. The spirit immediately drove him out in the wilderness and he was in the wilderness 40 days being tempted by Satan. He was with the animals and the angels were ministering to him. There's nothing like waiting where we are tempted to either be weak in our faith or to punt our faith. Waiting in anticipation just where? It's like just water that erodes a stone. It just doesn't matter. It could be a a small drip or it could be just rushing waters that erode away what our faith is in God. And why is Jesus, and I love that Mark, again, Mark decides, hey, I'll give this to you in two verses and here's why. (laughs) That there's nothing like anticipation that hits that. So why do we need him? See, See, our temptation, why do we need him to go into the wilderness? Because Our temptation is to do this ourselves. Isn't that what happened in Genesis chapter three? When when sin enters the picture, Adam and Eve say, I'm gonna do this on my own. Isn't that how Satan tempted Adam and Eve? Satan tempted Adam and Eve said, if you take this fruit, you could totally do this. You don't really need, do you really need to listen to God? You can do this on your own. Isn't that what waiting does? Isn't that being driven into the wilderness does? It drives us sometimes to not grow in faith, but to lack it because we want to try and fulfill it ourselves. Jesus is driven. In fact, the word driven is different than leads. Mark uses a language of driving into the wilderness that the Holy Spirit himself, instead of just leaving him there in the baptism and the glory of the moment, drives him into the wilderness because here's the point, Jesus was, it's not because Jesus was unwilling, but because it was an urgent event. It's driven, he is driven into the wilderness for 40 days to be alone in order to defeat every temptation that we would have to be unfaithful to God in our waiting. In order to identify, not only identify, but take on the sin that we have. See, different is Jesus driven in the wilderness than us. Jesus goes into the wilderness, not that he would be changed, but that we would be changed. Satan tries to change him, tries to tempt him, tries to be the adversary. And Mark makes no bones about the fact that Satan is not a myth, he's a reality. And there's a concentrated attack, cosmic blitz on Jesus at that moment. And Jesus, in that moment, by God's grace, thankfully, in him being the son of God is faithful so that we, even in our faithlessness, are held and kept no matter what. 
to experience the temptation, to experience the, the lack of, Jesus puts himself a lack of hunger, sleep, anything, power, in order to put himself in a position of anticipation of this relationship with God to bring us in. Isn't that what faith is? See, here's the thing, and I know this table is empty, and this is when I usually walk down to it, but I think it's an incredible illustration because our temptation with our faith is to try and earn or work our faith instead of to look to the one who is faithful. That's what faith is. Faith has an object. And that object is, has to be in the one who held our faith, who, who lived it, who identifies with us, who was tempted as we are and yet without sin. That we are not waiting in vain. We have a champion who actually was tempted in every way we are, externally by Satan, internally in the wilderness, and yet was a champion. He encountered every anticipation so that we can come to a table like this where we long. (laughs) I wish we could take this and we are in person today. And we can remember, though, the words that we are proclaiming when we take of this table. We always say what? We're proclaiming the Lord's death until what? He comes again. That we live in this tension because God has bookended the faith, his, our faith with his in Christ. We proclaim the Lord's death, his faithfulness to go to the cross until he comes again. Because when he does, our faith will do something that we've never had. It'll become sight. Faith of things unseen will become real and right before our eyes. And yet the, we know the object exists because he's come in space and time. All those temptations are wrapped up in Jesus. So that we can see an empty table and know that one day this will be a feast. And we will all eat together around it. And one day soon, again soon, we will come around this table and we will take of it and have a taste, an appetizer of the things to come. Because our Lord has done these things in his preparation, in his work, and even in his taking on temptation as we are. Let me pray for us.